This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Aideen Finnegan. Today, I talk to Irish Times journalist Sally Hayden. Last year, Sally won Irish Book of the Year for My Fourth Time We Drowned, her account of the terrible danger faced by those who want to travel from Africa to Europe in search of a better life. Across Africa, millions of people are on the move in search of safety. To give just one figure, the UN says violent extremism, political instability and climate change have displaced 12.7 million people in West and Central Africa. In recent months, Sally has been to Niger, Senegal and Somalia. And today she talks to me about what she found there and how people in the world's poorest places are welcoming others who are fleeing violence. But first, I want to ask Sally about something closer to home. Minister for Justice Simon Harris has said he's going to act to deal with the issue of people arriving in Ireland with no documents or fake documents and who then seek asylum. At the moment, I'm not sure how closely, Sally, you're following events here, but there is a sort of an uptick in anti-immigrant sentiment. And one of the big things that maybe protesters are really hanging their coats on is that people are travelling on fake documents and what, or, or they are destroying their documents in transit and, you know, they're asking why. And I was just wondering if you could put some context on that. Like, would, you, would people even hold a passport in the first place coming from somewhere in Central Africa or Western Africa? Yeah, like a lot of people don't have the capacity. They don't have access to safe routes. They don't, they can't get on a plane that easily. And so it might be that somebody's supplied with a fake document. It might be that they lost their documents when they tried to escape or they escaped wherever they had initially come from. And yeah, I mean, I imagine that people who get on planes would tend to be using fake documents, which they potentially or or they could have been supplied them by a trafficker or a smuggler and you know they're either instructed to destroy them or somebody takes them back from them before they reach immigration. Sally you were in Senegal recently where President Michael D. Higgins was visiting why was he there? Yeah so I went um, he was there for a food security conference and meeting the president Macky Sall and also uh, he went to a former slave trading centre Um, And yeah, he made two speeches at the Food Security Conference. Let us make this century Africa century, one which will see the continent become not only free from hunger. And also did bilaterals with the Sierra Leonean president and the Nigerian president, Mohamedou Buhari. So I did a long interview with him and he said a lot of things, actually. He was quite critical of multilateral institutions like the World Bank, the IMF. He said... You know, he is critical again of debt that African countries are dealing with, basically, that he said is kind of preventing people from being able to develop properly. I basically asked him for his response to the situation that's going on in Ireland now with the protests and with people speaking about asylum seekers and the situation with accommodation. Do you have a message to Irish people who are experiencing poverty, who feel that they're being kind of, um, that refugees are being prioritised over them potentially? Oh, I, I'd ask them to, to please think again about that because uh, the, the fact of the matter, millions... Of, it isn't... It isn't an, I would, my appeal is not one to selfishness that we have been through this ourselves. No. We have, in fact, actually, to make our commitment to a, a, a common humanity. And one of the things that he said was, you know, in terms of climate change and even the level of conflict that's happening right now, that actually... In the future, he thinks we'll need to rethink 
how borders work and how states work. I think we have to think about borders and states uh, again anymore. Uh, the nature of the of the climate effect, the nature is such that it isn't viable to be looking, talking about borders and migratory uh, measures in the same way as we did before. Everything has changed. It has changed because of climate change. It has changed because of conflict. It what he was referring to, I guess, is uh, particularly in terms of climate change, the fact that many people are going to be displaced by it. I mean, people are already being displaced, but a lot more people are going to be. Very practically, we have to we have to rethink how we define movement. He said different types of movements need to be re-examined too. We can't look at those drowned in the sea without realizing that something has gone desperately wrong. The sort of crisis that sends large numbers of people across borders in search of safety is happening right now in northwest Nigeria. There, armed gangs with up to 30,000 members terrorise the population with violence and kidnapping. Many of those fleeing cross the border into the neighbouring country of Niger. Niger is sheltering now more than 200,000 Nigerian refugees, so people who have fled, fled across the border. And... Yeah, I thought it was important to speak to them because the Nigerian elections are happening on February 25th. And, you know, these are people who won't have a vote, basically. So even though they're refugees, they fled because of insecurity. They're now counted as diaspora and there's no diaspora vote for Nigerians. They yeah, won't have any say in who takes over the leadership of the country and who might be able to fix the situation back home. Can you tell me the story of Baraka Alio? Yeah, so Baraka Alio, she was one of the people that I met in a refugee camp in southern Niger. And she had escaped from northwest Nigeria. Um, and basically what happened was that bandits, what they call bandits, came to the uh, town. And what she said was that they basically threatened to rape her in front of her husband. And then when he objected, they killed him. She eventually managed to escape, but her brother and sister and father were all killed as well by the bandits. And she has four children. One of them is missing. One of them she managed to take with her to Niger, too, I think, are staying with an aunt back in Nigeria. And she has been in the camp where I met her for the last three months and said that she basically just doesn't want to go home again. She's absolutely terrified. Do you or do any of the people you spoke to have any uh, um, thoughts on why there's just been a complete utter breakdown of law and order in that part of the, of Nigeria? I mean, the, I think it might have been Baraka herself who mentioned that insecurity was was a new thing for them. that They didn't have this five or six years ago where they were terrified of bandits coming into their village and carrying out those kind of horrible crimes that you described. Yeah, I mean, there are backgrounds to this insecurity in, in terms of tensions between, you know, ethnic or, or different um, language groups or farmers and herders. But it has basically escalated to a situation where you have tens of thousands of people said to be members of these armed groups that are kind of operating for profit, basically terrorizing people for profit, kidnapping them, stealing things, just generally terrorizing. But but it seems to be more basically criminality rather than that they have an ideology that they're trying to fight for. Whereas in the northeast of Nigeria, 
um, you have a situation where it's more like Islamic insurgency, like there are groups who are trying to create an Islamic caliphate. But yeah, the Northwest, I think because there isn't that element, it's gone under the radar a lot more and it's kind of less understood. But because I've reported a lot on the Northeast, I've been there um, quite a few times, including for the Irish Times, quite a lot of times, like 2016, 2017, 2021. And, you know, the stories that you hear there are absolutely horrific in terms of when people have to flee their villages and what happens to them when they flee. But actually, this was equally horrific. And it surprised even me to, you know, to hear what's happening and, and see the lack of awareness about it. And how come there's so little done to kind of protect people in that region of the country from these armed gangs? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. And there's a lot of allegations among the refugees that authority figures may actually be profiting off the situation or may be involved in it. Is it that the Nigerian uh, military is incapable or is it that there's, you know, more going on there? I can't fully answer that, but... The people that I spoke to, they said, you know, maybe a new president will improve the situation at least. But it's not the only part of Nigeria that's facing extreme insecurity. And yeah, I think, you know, the country is really in a, in a crisis situation. And I guess Niger is one of the countries we actually don't hear a huge amount about. Can you give us a quick explainer? Like, how big is it? Where is it? I mean, Niger is a French word, so I'm guessing it was colonised by France at one stage. So what, what languages are spoken? What religion are the people? What's, what's the profile? Yeah, sure. So Niger is a West African landlocked country. It has around 25 million people um, and a pretty massive landmass. It was colonized by France and I think potentially that's one reason why in Ireland people hear about it a lot less is that, you know, I think the Francophone countries generally you hear about less in the English language media. Um, but having said that, like I'm always surprised, for example, Niger, like the people from Niger, it's like Nigerians. I'm going to say that wrong, but the way it's felt is N-I-G-E or I-E-N-S. And whenever I write that, I notice that people will contact me and say, you know, you made a typo. It's Nigerians. And I'm like, no, no, this is people from Niger. They're <laughs> not people from Nigeria. So Niger, some in, some important things to know. It's one of the least developed countries in the world. So um, while it has kind of natural wealth, the people are generally very poor. And um, in terms of the UN's latest human development index, which is a measurement related to life expectancy, education and gross national income per capita, it's at 189 out of 191 countries in the world. Wow. But it's also like very beautiful, you know, very culturally rich. There's a lot going on. Uh, yeah, in terms of language, again, there's lots of different languages. French is obviously one. Where I was, people were speaking Hausa. And their religion, the vast majority of people are Muslim. Actually, before we came on this call, Sally, uh, Declan Conlon, who's producing this episode, shared a graphic with me and it's a, a population pyramid. And it's one of those ones that you would have learned about in geography uh, back in the day for junior research, where it's really wide at the base and really, really thin at the top. And that uh, that, you know, half of Niger's population is aged under 15 so that that definitely lets you know what kind of life expectancy you're talking about if you're living there. Why is that? That's not just related to life expectancy. That's to do with the number of children that a woman has. 
And on average in Niger, it's mm. now below seven per woman, but it was above seven per woman. And I think in the 80s, it was eight or above eight. And I interviewed the humanitarian minister while we were there. Um, that interview will come out, you know, I guess in the coming weeks in the Irish Times. And he was saying that they're trying to get it down to four. But yeah, there's like, you know, it, basically kind of a population explosion going on as well at the moment. And yeah, it's going to be, I think it's one of the fastest growing populations in the world. I mean, it would have to be. You're working on a story as well about child marriage in the country. And I think you you, you explain the context for it, because obviously it sounds horrific when we're reading about girls who might be 13 or even as young as nine. I think you mentioned that can be married off to a much older man. And, you know, parents might sanction it because they're so poor. This is one less child's mouth they have to feed and that maybe they feel she's better off and there are parents who might oppose it but they they could be overruled by other dominant family members so are NGOs uh, really working to try and dissuade communities from marrying girls off so young or is that seen as sort of western intervention or what what's the attitude now in 2023? Yeah I mean I was interested in this actually because uh, Niger is said to be the country with the highest child marriage rate in the world. And I was looking into this. Actually, those statistics come from 2012. And so it's very, very hard to say exactly how prevalent it is now. But it's certainly prevalent. And it's important to say as well, like the, the legal age of marriage for girls is 15 with parental approval. So it's not like, you know, marrying a nine year old is legal. But it's just that very little seems to happen if that is what, you know, if that does go ahead. And I was speaking to people about this in um, refugee camps. So Nigerians actually had come across the border. Uh, one girl who is whose story is going to be told in an upcoming article, she was married age 13. And actually it was coming to Niger that had her saved from that marriage because when she arrived in the refugee camp she's now living in, an NGO Save the Children helped her to have her marriage dissolved. And now she's 17 and, you know, she's finally free and she's feeling a lot better about that. Um, and when I went into the town nearby, another lady that I met was saying, you know, child marriage used to be prevalent, but actually they've there's been a lot of talk on the radio with people saying, you know, authorities as well saying, you know, this is bad, like explaining why it's bad. And so they told me the numbers had gone down. But then I actually went to Yame, the capital, and I just coincidentally was talking to someone about something else. I then asked her, you know, have you heard about child marriage here? And she actually said she was involved in the marriage of a nine-year-old like a few days before. Wow. So, yeah, obviously that kind of shocked me. That was a wake-up call that things aren't necessarily getting better. But it's always important to say, you know, yeah, the NGOs are doing work, but also people from Niger themselves are doing work. There was a fashion designer called Alfadi, who's very famous, who held a show that was basically aimed at, you know, showing that child marriage is wrong. Um, and that happened in the capital, as far as I know. And, you know, there, there's a lot of efforts happening. And people are also saying, you know, Internet access, like people didn't have access to the Internet 10 years ago. And now the amount of people who do have access to it is going up, particularly in urban areas and seeing how people live in different places that's potentially having knock on impacts for women's rights in terms of improving them. But in a country like Niger, because there's such a lack of data, we just don't know, you know, and there's other factors like climate change, like 
um, you know, the rising cost of living, a range of other things that mean that the rate could be going up. So actually, we don't know, is it going up or down? I'll continue my conversation with Sally Hayden after this short break. There's a lot of tension being stoked in Ireland right now, you know, about who's legitimately a refugee and who isn't. And these are very narrow definitions that people have to fulfil, I suppose. So I'm just thinking about the, the people you've described in that refugee camp, the Opportunity Village. Like, could they get further than Niger? Could they try and get to Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that it's always, you know, I'm not an expert on Irish asylum, the Irish asylum situation specifically, but it's always good to be reminded that at least 83% of refugees live in developing countries. And actually, like, trying to make a journey to a Western country is very, very complicated and difficult and can be quite expensive. And, yeah, like, most people just don't have the capacity to do that. And generally, it would be more likely that people would move to, like, the people that I met in the camp, you know, they don't have the internet, for example. Like, they can't get information. They don't. One guy, I asked him, does he want to take my WhatsApp number? And he said, like, when would I ever have the chance to access WhatsApp? So um, it tends to be that people will move, you know, to the next place that they can get to. And there they might face a lot of challenges. And maybe at some point they'll manage to move to another place. But it's a very, very tiny number that managed to make it all the way to Europe, for example. And, and it would tend to be the people who, yeah, like have you know, maybe family support, like the whole family would kind of bond together and say, okay, if we can try and get one person there, then, you know, maybe that that person can help us all, for example. And yeah, I don't know how to explain to an Irish person basically how privileged people there are. Like, I mean, people in Ireland, because yeah, most people just, they don't have the capacity to move, but um, but yeah, but it doesn't mean that they're safe where they are. And that's also one thing that I really... I guess you need to emphasize like the people who cross the border to Niger, like they still are going without food. You know, they don't have jobs. They like can't necessarily envisage a future. Um, They don't have opportunities. The kids don't necessarily go to school. You know, they can be victims of things like child marriage. There's other risks there as well. So it's not like they've reached necessarily a safe place, but it's a safer place than the place that they've fled. And obviously Niger being such a poor country as well, you know, I can't imagine it being very well equipped to deal with refugees coming over the border from Nigeria. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, Niger now has more than 300,000 refugees, so more than 200,000 Nigerians and then others as well. And everyone I spoke to said they want to keep welcoming them. They said, like, they can't turn them away. They will share what they have. Um, you know, I met like a village chief, for example, who had refugees living in his home. I met a lot of people who were just sharing food regularly with the refugees, like refugee camps, the rations. They're meant to be getting UN rations, but those have been cut quite drastically recently because of funding cuts. And so they were saying when they're hungry, they go to the nearby villages and beg and they'll pretty much always be given something. But um, but yeah, a lot of people I spoke to, they said, particularly in Islam, like their belief is that you need to share what you can. And so, yeah, there is really a culture of sharing. And I spoke again to the humanitarian minister and he said that he can't envisage any cutoff point where they would, you know, stop taking people. It's really interesting that you talk about a country that sort of is <laughs> the least developed and I suppose has has nothing accommodating these refugees and going, we have to share what we have. 
one thing that might be also good to mention there is that like again we don't know what's going to happen there in the future because the Sahel region which Niger is in um, it's said by the UN anyway to be increasing uh, like 1.5 times the speed the temperature is increasing there because of climate change and everyone I spoke to said like their harvests are worse you know the farming has been affected the amount of food they have has been affected so if you think of all these people that are exactly you know in these situations but the amount of food they have is constantly going down it's it is kind of like a creeping crisis you know like it's not um it's it's hard to explain it's hard even to get your head around because it's just that every year it's like slightly worse you were in the Horn of Africa as well recently too and I think you said that there hadn't been rain there since 2019 is Niger in a similar, you know, he mentioned it's a creeping downfall. Are there fears that the that Niger could face a similar problem due to climate change? It's not that there hasn't been any rain in the Horn of Africa, but it's that the rainy seasons have failed. So they failed to give the required amount of rain that would uh, enable there to be a decent harvest. In Niger, the same is happening. Like it's just getting drier and drier. And when there's rain, there's floods. I mean, yeah, malnutrition is a massive problem. I saw a lot of malnourished kids, for example. But but it's really hard to explain climate change even I'm trying to get my head around it all the time because it is creeping, you know. It's not like you can say last year was like this and this year was like this. It's like every year it's just a tiny bit worse or maybe like one year will be okay, but the, you know, the overall trend is just getting worse. And yeah, like Niger, 80% of the country is desert, so... It's already, like, pretty dry and hot, you know? What's your big take-home after the last month or two, having visited Senegal, Niger? I think it's important to pay attention to what's going on in in the wider world. There's, like, a lot of crises right now. Um, I, myself, am learning a lot more about climate change and how that's impacting the situations all over the place. And a lot of generosity. Like, I've been really amazed, like I said, in Niger by the generosity. Also in Somalia, like, more than one million people were displaced by the latest drought by August last year. And again, I met just so many people who were putting together what they could to help out the displaced people. And that's Somalis, by the way, like, you know, help out um, people who were displaced or who were in need of assistance. And I think that there's charity and generosity happening on quite like extreme levels quite impressive levels that goes kind of unappreciated I guess and I think that yeah sometimes it feels like in Ireland people can get very hung up on the situation domestically without appreciating what what other countries or other people are you know going through or at least having an understanding of that. Sally Hayden thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. To read all of Sally's reporting for the Irish Times, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the News will be back on Wednesday.